I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting the Pentateuch. Our text is Genesis 1-1 through 2-3. King David praised the Word of God in Psalm 19 with these words, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. I loved this passage in college. I remember marking it all up in my Bible. Though I'm not sure when I asked the question, what exactly was David talking about? What was his Bible? The answer, of course, is the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, also with the books of Joshua and Judges. That makes me consider Psalm 19 in a new light. I have to ask myself, do I consider the first five books of the Bible sweeter than honey and more desirable than gold? And if not, why not? Is it because these books are not sweeter than honey and not more desirable than gold? Or is it that I do not know them well enough to experience the sweetness and the value that David experienced. I've worked over the surface and picked up many wonderful gems lying about, especially from Genesis and Exodus. How, though, do I dig deeper to experience this kind of appreciation for the words of Moses that David describes? Moses had written in Deuteronomy seventeen eighteen to 19 that when Israel does come to have a king, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll In the presence of the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. That's not something I can see most of the kings of Israel doing, but David, I could see David obeying this one. He wrote it out, he memorized it, he reflected on it, he chewed it over in his mind, and tried to apply it to his personal life and to the governance of the nation. Of course, David made some really big mistakes, and didn't understand everything, or even apply all of what he did understand, still he sought after God and was able to sincerely say, this is gold to me, this is honey. And to be fair, we have the wonderful news of the Messiah described in the Gospels. We have the details of our new covenant played out in the real-life letters to the churches. We have a new vision of history in John's Revelation. We have a lot more Bible to focus on than David did. That's true, So it makes sense that we spend a lot of our time in the New Testament. At the same time, our own understanding of the New Covenant that applies to us is greatly enhanced by our study of the Old Covenant that applied to them. Paul calls our covenant the covenant of grace and their covenant the covenant of law, particularly in Romans 6 and 7. But it would be a serious mistake to think that there's no grace in the law or that there's no law in the covenant of grace. We have the do's and don'ts of commandment all over the New Testament. Just read Matthew 5 through 8, Ephesians 4 through 6, Romans 12 through 15, or the book of James. We have a lot of commandment, and we need to know how law works in our covenant of grace. One of the ways to better understand that is to go back and get a picture of how grace works in the covenant of law. Study of the law of Moses should give us insight into the new covenant of Jesus. The Pentateuch is the singular most important document, 
for understanding the background of the New Testament. The beginning of a Christian worldview starts here with interpreting the Pentateuch. We're not going to go verse by verse through these five books. This will be a survey study. We are going to address passages through the Pentateuch that will enhance our ability to understand the whole. Whenever I teach in an old European capital like Prague or Kiev or Sarajevo, there's always a river running through it. Rivers were the highways of the old world. There's also usually a square with a guy on a horse, except for Ljubljana. They have a poet and they're very proud of the fact. But each city has its monuments that the locals want to show you. And along with the historic statues and buildings, there's the bustle of life, a large outdoor market, massive apartment blocks with schools and factories and banks scattered throughout. In a big city, it takes some time to get to know the ins and the outs of all the neighborhoods with the various streets and shops. And I imagine that's true for you with the Pentateuch. You know, when you go to the Pentateuch, you have your favorite places to visit, places you've been before, maybe the creation story, maybe the Ten Plagues, maybe the spies going into the Promised Land. There's a good chance it's a narrative section of the Pentateuch. But there's some more pedestrian places that might not excite you. Maybe you've just walked through them. The genealogies, the tabernacle furniture, most of Leviticus. I want to help you become more familiar with all that you might encounter in the Pentateuch. I want to take you to a few places where you may never have spent much time. There is a river that runs through the whole, and that will help us keep our bearings. It's the river of God's commitment to his own promises, his commitment to his gracious plan of redemption in spite of his people's repeated faithlessness. We'll also visit some major monuments with a focus on monuments to grace. We'll uncover some of the cultural spots that give insight into the thought and life of the times. And since I get to be the tour guide, I'll also take you to a few of my favorite out-of-the-way places. We'll not see everything. We don't have time on this visit, but that's okay, because we're going to see a lot. And my goal is to motivate you to come back regularly on your own. We'll have four or five lessons per book with a couple extra at the beginning because Genesis is so foundational. And we'll start in this lesson with Genesis 1. But before we do that, I want to go over a major motif that will help us with the culture of the Pentateuch. And then I want to go over some background details about the Pentateuch as a work of literature. And then we'll get into Genesis 1. First, the kingdom motif. The kingdom motif will be a consistent background model or idea for us as we study through the Pentateuch. It will help us understand aspects of Old Testament thought and the thought of the ancient Near East. Kingdoms are recurring motif through the Bible. Mark introduces the ministry of Jesus in 1.14.15, writing that Jesus came preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Later, Jesus taught his disciples to pray this way, our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Jesus speaks about the kingdom both as a present reality and a future reality. And this already but not yet sense of the kingdom fits with the two comings of Jesus. He already reigns from heaven, and he will come again to fully establish his reign over a new heaven and a new earth. David recognizes that his kingdom is a reflection or perhaps a vassal state of a much greater kingdom. 
He praises God in Psalm 145, to 12, this way. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. David sees God as the king of a great kingdom. Our kingdom motif has six elements, six things you would expect to have in order to have kingdom. What do you think those six things are? What are the basic elements of kingdom? You might want to pause the audio here and see how many you can come up with. What do you need to have to have kingdom? The two most basic elements are a king and a people. Some students say an army, but I'm counting that in with the people. King and a people. So what else do we need? We need a land. That's an environment or a place where the people will live. We also need a covenant that will define the relationship between the king and his people. Covenant's not only a biblical idea. A covenant between a great king and a lesser kingdom was called a suzerain vassal treaty in the ancient Near East. It was a common type of legal agreement with a fixed form. We'll talk more about suzerain vassal treaty or covenant in our next lesson. For now, it's enough to recognize that kingdom and covenant go together. So we have a king, a people, a land, and a covenant. That's four elements. We also need a mediator because no self-respecting great king is going to communicate the requirements of a treaty himself. He communicates through a mediator. And finally, we need a palace, which in the case of God or a God would be called a temple. In fact, the Hebrew word for temple comes from a much older Sumerian word that literally means big house. A temple is a house for a god. That's why in the ancient Near East, it would be ridiculous to have a temple with no idol in it. The point of the temple is that it houses the god. These are our six elements, king, people, covenant, mediator, land, and temple. And we could trace each of these elements as an important theological theme through the Pentateuch. You know, we could look at the temple theme or trace the importance of the land. And each will come up as we move along in our series. We'll especially give focus to the idea of covenant as a definition of the relationship between God, the great king, and man, his vassal people. So our special focus is on king, people, and covenant. Before we move into Genesis, I want you to know where I'm coming from regarding the background details of the Pentateuch as a book, such as the author, title, date, and audience. One of my favorite professors in seminary was Dr. Jeffrey Niehaus. He had a significant influence on me, introducing me to ancient Near Eastern culture and theological backgrounds of the Bible. He recently put out a three-volume biblical theology. The first volume came out in 2014. I've not read it, but just from looking at a synopsis of the books, I see that I received much of the content in his classes. I really liked that at times Dr. Niehaus would share with us some of his own walk with Jesus. He came to faith during the last month of receiving his doctorate from Harvard in English poetry. He then started over getting his master's in theology and moving to England to pursue a doctorate in Old Testament studies. And Dr. Niehaus had two readers, both of whom must sign off on his doctoral work in order for him to receive his degree. And in his dissertation, Dr. Niehaus argued that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. But one of his official readers required him to give equal credit 
to the opposing documentary hypothesis, which argues that the text of the Pentateuch comes from four schools of writers referred to as J-E-D-M-P. If you've ever heard of J-E-D-P, that's referring to the documentary hypothesis, and it's rejecting Mosaic authorship. Holding to Mosaic authorship and not willing to give equal support to the documentary hypothesis, Dr. Niehaus was refused his doctorate. You know, all that work was rejected because he held to Mosaic authorship. Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary hired him anyway. He did have a doctorate from Harvard, after all, and I'm sure they appreciated his biblical stance. I bring up Dr. Niehaus for three reasons. First, I want you to be aware of one of the major influences on the teaching you're going to get in this series. I'm always trying to interpret faithfully the text of the Bible. At the same time, we all have teachers who help us and influence us. I'll post a bibliography at ObserveTheWord.com to give other acknowledgments. Second, I want you to know that I'm familiar with the documentary hypothesis, even though we're not going to spend any time on it. And third, I want to communicate to you that I reject the assumptions of the documentary hypothesis, believing with Dr. Niehaus and the vast majority of evangelical scholarship through the ages with the biblical assertion that Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible. So all that just to say, Moses wrote it. Moses is the author. Recognizing Moses as the author of the Pentateuch helps us understand the title, date, and audience. The Jewish title for these five books is Torah, which is usually translated in English as law. So when we get past these first five books and later authors refer back to them, like Joshua does in chapter 8, verse 31, he writes, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, the word law there is the Hebrew word Torah. Of course, that word means much more than just the do's and don'ts, the commandments of law. It encapsulates all the material included from Genesis to Deuteronomy. It's the instruction of Moses or the covenant of Moses. That's the law of Moses. The word Pentateuch is a Greek word meaning five scroll work. This helps us to remember that the first five books of the Bible, while operating as separate books, also operate as a unified whole, a series of five books. A survey of the Pentateuch, like we're attempting, is a great place to consider the larger unity of the whole. We're moving quickly enough in order to keep the big picture of God's promises in mind. As far as the title goes, I'll try to stick with Pentateuch, but may use Torah or books of Moses or books of the law, all to mean the same thing, the first five books of the Bible. Rather than argue a precise timeline for the Pentateuch, I suggest to you an easy-to-remember timeline. It's approximate, but extremely helpful. Think of Abraham at 2000 BC, Moses at 1500 BC, and David at 1000 BC. 2000, 1500, 1000. How easy is that? Abraham, Moses, David. And Jesus came at zero, and we're on the other side at 2000 AD. Simple. Having to find the author, title, and date, that leaves us with the audience. This is one of the first principles of good Bible study. We don't want to jump in and start interpreting the Pentateuch as though Moses had us primarily in mind. The most basic meaning of the text is generally going to be the meaning that the author intended his audience to receive. Who was the audience? Usually someone answers by saying God's people or Israel. That's on the right track, but not specific enough. Which Israel? 
Who were the real people who first received this five-scroll work from Moses? The next answer I get tends to be the Israelites who came out of Egypt. That's closer, but most of them died in the desert before Deuteronomy was written. The first audience to receive the Pentateuch was the second generation of Israelites to have come out of Egypt. It was the second generation as they were camped on the wrong side of the Jordan River, faced with the decision of whether or not they would be faithful where their parents' generation had been unfaithful. Will we trust God and enter the land? Moses knows that he's not going to enter the land. He's done his best to prepare Joshua to take up the mantle of leadership. And now he's written the book of the law for these people for this generation. They have three big picture questions they need answered. One, who is our God? Two, who are we? Three, what is our mission? This is what Moses needs them to know. And we can ask these same three questions from an individual point of view. Who is my God? Who am I? What is my mission? These are the questions that this second generation out of Egypt needed answered in order to walk faithfully with God. These are also the questions that we need answered for our generation if we are to walk faithfully with God. We start with this second generation out of Egypt, but there's going to be a lot of relevance to us. So let's get started. Each time we start a new book in this series, I'll give you a basic outline or structure for the book. For Genesis, I'm using Bruce Wilkinson's Talk Through the Bible outline. Its simplicity is very nice. We divide the book into two parts. Chapters 1 through 11 cover four events. Chapters 12 through 50 cover four people. The four events deal with all humanity, while the four people deal with one family. The events are creation, fall, flood, and nations. That's Genesis 1 through 11 in all of humanity. The four people are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. That's Genesis 12 to 50 and one family. To get a nice overview of Genesis in your mind, I also recommend the Bible Project overview videos. They're great. In fact, when I teach this course in a classroom setting, I stop talking at this point and have the class watch the first Genesis video, which covers chapters 1 through 11. Now, you can do that if you want to, to stop now and watch the video. The Bible Project really handles the biblical literature well, and for your convenience, I've posted all the Pentateuch videos from the Bible Project on the resource page of our website at observetheword.com. So if you want to see a short overview video, go to observetheword.com and watch Genesis Part 1. We're beginning with the beginning and are just going to address Chapter 1 and the first story of creation. As we look at the text, we'll focus on those three big-picture questions. Who is our God? Who are we? And what is our mission? Genesis 1.1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that sums up the whole story. It's not unusual for biblical literature to give us a layered approach to a narrative where the story doesn't unfold simply linearly, but successive accounts overlap one another. So Genesis 1 and 2 is an example. The story of Genesis 1 ends a little into chapter 2 at verse 3 with the seven days and God resting. Genesis 2 doesn't pick up after day 7, but starts by giving focus to days 3 and 6 when God first brought forth vegetation 
and then created man. Then perhaps we're to understand the rest of chapter 2 being completed on day 6, or the rest of the process takes more than a day, and so the story moves forward. In either case, the Genesis 2 narrative doesn't follow, but overlaps with the Genesis 1 narrative, giving us additional information with a different emphasis. Perhaps that's how we should understand chapter 1, verse 1. In this first verse, we're given the whole story. God created heaven and the earth. It's a summary statement that also serves as an introduction. Genesis 1-2 and following doesn't take place after Genesis 1-1, but gives us more information about the creation described in Genesis 1-1. We would then ask, how did God create heaven and earth? Or, what do we need to know about the creation of heaven and earth? Verse 2 is the point where we're picking up the story. God has already created a watery mass to work with. So Genesis 1-2, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Water in the ancient Near East was a symbol of chaos. This comes out strongly in the flood narrative in which God saves Noah's family through the waters of judgment. In fact, ancient cultures may have viewed water as chaos because of a common memory of the flood. But there was this theme in ancient literature. Here the waters are described as formless and void, with the Spirit of God moving over them. Moses will later make a literary link to the phrase, the Spirit of God was moving or hovering over the surface. That same Hebrew word shows up in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32.11, where Moses describes God as a majestic bird watching over Israel like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spreads his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. The vision of the Spirit of God hovering as creator and as protector occurs here at the beginning of the Pentateuch and then at the end of the Pentateuch. It's a really nice literary link suggesting the unity of all five books from beginning to end. So we start with this image of God, the Spirit hovering over the formless waters. In verse 1, he created something out of nothing. Now he's continuing the process of creation with the additional idea of bringing order out of chaos. Then we get the first day. This is Genesis 1, 3 through 5. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning one day. Now we have light. The beginning of this story is telling us about our God. Our God is the one who creates something out of nothing, who brings order into chaos, who calls light to shine into the darkness. That's our God. And scholars recognize that elements of this story oppose ancient Near East creation myths. You know, there's no description here of God needing the creation. There's no leviathan, no monster of chaos. There's no battle between gods to bring it about. The earth doesn't come out of the body of a god or a monster like in all those other stories. Nothing exists prior to God's action in verse 1. And though some rejection of false ancient worldviews is likely present in the background of our Genesis story, it's left in the background. This story is not focusing on the false narratives but on giving us a true narrative that teaches us about our God. 
Now, we learn that God exists before the creation of anything. We learn that God brings the physical world into being. We learn that order and light come from God. We also learn that what God makes is good. In verse 4, God looks at the light and he calls it good. That will be repeated every day. Everything that God makes is a reflection of him and is therefore good. What God makes is good. While rejecting ancient myths, this story also rejects a modern myth. God does not arise out of human consciousness. Human consciousness comes to be because of God. Likewise, moral good is not a social structure. It is not defined by human culture and conventions. It comes out of the nature of God. Good is defined by who God is. Would God be God if there were never any humans around to experience him or worship him? Absolutely. He is not at all defined by us. We are defined by him. So we can ask, who are we? According to this story, who are we? And let's consider that as we read on. In day one, we have light. Let's read the rest of the story, all seven days, from Genesis 1-6 to 2-3. And as we read, pay attention to what's created on each day and see if you can detect the pattern. There is, of course, the linear seven-day pattern, but there's another pattern to the days that goes along with that. See if you catch it. Let's read Genesis 1, 6 to 2, 3. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of the earth, bearing fruit after their kind, with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning a third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, a cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, 
and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw that all he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. The first pattern of the days is the list of seven. So we all know that we're familiar with their seven days of creation. There's a second pattern in there, and that pattern is a parallel pattern. So days one through three are set parallel to days four through six. Day one and four go together, then day two and five, and then day three and six. Let's think about what God does on each of the days. In the first three days, God creates the environment. In the second set of three days, he's going to populate the environment. So God created light on the first day. He separated the waters to create sky and sea on the second day. He separates the waters again on the third day to bring forth land with vegetation. These are our environments, or we could say our kingdoms, our realms. Day four parallels day one, in which God created light and separated it from darkness by populating the realm of light with the sun and the moon and the stars. Day five parallels day two, on which God separated sky and sea by populating sky and sea with birds and fish. Day six parallels day three, on which God separated dry land from the water by populating that dry land with animals. And the primary way an author communicates meaning is through words and phrases and sentences. An author also communicates meaning through style and structure. And in this case, the parallel structures of the days communicates to us the creation of an environment in which mankind will live, but not only live, mankind is going to reign. God creates the environment, then he populates the environment, crowning that population with the creation of man. So we're learning about ourselves. God is defining us. Let's read again 1, 26 to 28. It's about us. God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What do we learn about ourselves? 
most importantly, we learn that we're created in the image of God. This is where the intrinsic value of the human being comes from. If human rights is not just a completely made-up concept, where does it come from? How do we ground it? How do we say that human beings are valuable and that they have certain rights that we should pay attention to? We are unique and valuable because God has made us in his image. This is the basis for equality between men and women. Verse 17 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them as equals. The modern world, especially in the West, holds this principle to be self-evident. But is it? History suggests it's not self-evident. History promotes the view that a certain class or race or gender is better, smarter, more valuable. That's the way cultures have acted throughout time. The secular worldview has no ultimate ground for the claim of equality. No ultimate ground for the claim of value. You know, we sense it to be right in our cultures that little boys and little girls have equal value, equal worth. What's our basis for that? Well, Genesis 1.27, we're made in the image of God, male and female. He made them in his image. This is why we argue the value of human life regardless of race, regardless of gender, from the womb to the hospice bed, each human being bears the intrinsic value of being made in God's image. Being in God's image means that we are moral beings. And this comes out through the Pentateuch. The basis for the law of Moses is that we should be holy because our God is holy. That's who he is. You know, what he creates is good, good, good. Very good. So we should be too. This is part of our uniqueness in the animal realm, this sense of morality. Even if it has been polluted by the fall of man and twisted, it's still in us and shines out at times. You know, along with the sense of morality, we share also in God's rationality and in God's creativity. He's made us able to observe the world, to think about it, to appreciate beauty, and to desire to create. Something that may not come out here explicitly, but I think comes out in Scripture, particularly in the New Covenant concept of the body of Christ, is how we are meant to reflect or give image to the nature of God as Trinity. To God is God is three in one, to the communal nature of God. C.S. Lewis described a wonderful truth about the mystery of the Trinity in his book, Mere Christianity. First John 4, 8 says, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And when we say that God is love, there's a very interesting truth that accompanies the Christian mystery of God is three in one. Now, because God is one, it's possible to say that he's self-existent. He depends on no one for anything. He has always been and he always will be. He is uniquely the first. But if God was merely one, then that would mean love was not actually possible until God created someone to love. God must lack the experience of love until he creates. And so God has a need if he wants to love. In order to love, he must create. But that's not true for the biblical concept of God. He is one, but according to the biblical mystery, he's also three. And among the three, the Father has always loved the Son, and the Son has always loved the Father, and so also the Spirit. We don't have to say God values love. 
or God desires love, or God imagines love, or God created love, we can say, God is love. And in that, we mean that he has always loved. He has never lacked love. So now, how does a single individual, like Adam, reflect the image of God as love? Now, I guess a single individual could reflect God's image by loving God, but I believe that God's intention in creating human partnership between a man and a woman, among a family, among a community, such as the body of Christ, his intention is that we might show off the image of God by loving one another. God created man, he created him male and female, to image his love by loving There's one more way revealed here that human beings are to be like God. They are to reign over the earth. That brings up our kingdom motif. It's here in the first chapter of Genesis, this idea of kingdom. God, the great king, has created a kingdom for his vassals, Adam and Eve, for them to live in and to rule in. They are to be king and queen. That leads us to our third question. What's our mission? The original mission of Adam and Eve is to be fruitful, fill the earth, rule over it, subdue it. And they're to do this as a reflection of the image of God on earth. And it doesn't mean that the earth and animals are created for the whim of man, to be used up and abused. It does mean that the creation is subservient to man. It's wrong to emphasize the need to care for our environment to such a degree that the earth and the animals are given equal or more value than man. The earth and the animals are the environment in which we live. On the other hand, we do have a responsibility to care for the environment God has entrusted to us in a manner that we imagine God would want us to care for it. God is the great king who rules over all. He's now created an environment for mankind to thrive in as his vassals. Adam and Eve are lesser rulers, stewards of the realm God has given into their hands. We can imagine God's intention that Adam and Eve would rule benevolently as his representatives. It sounds like it's going to take some work to multiply, fill, subdue, and rule. God has given them real responsibility with the intention that as their rule spreads over creation, the glory of God is to be manifested to the heavenly realms. That mission will be affected by the fall of man in chapter 3. We're going to have to ask, how does this change after the fall? But a sense of it is maintained for Israel. They're still to flourish on the earth as a reflection of the God they worship. So when we get to Exodus on Mount Sinai, God will say to Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They're still supposed to be holy to reflect his goodness. They are to be holy. Priests are to reflect the goodness of God and bring others into right relationship with him. And then later, God will say to the second generation out of Egypt in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that they're to live out the law as a witness to the surrounding nations. They're supposed to see how you live and be attracted to your God. And this continues to be our mission, doesn't it? You know, we have an awesome God who shines light into the darkness and brings order out of chaos. And we're to join in that work, living out his image as a witness to his glory. We were made for this, to reflect him. So as the moon reflects the glory of the sun, which is not its own, but shines brightly out, 
so too we are created to reflect the glory of God. That's who he is. That's who we are. That's our mission. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of the Pentateuch, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.